You're listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast. Seattle Growth Podcast. Available free on iTunes. Free on iTunes. Those are some of the talented voices you heard earlier in this season of Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today we shift the focus from the past and present of Seattle music to its future. Last week's episode took a look at Seattle's musical theater community and how it relates to other elements of Seattle's music scene. You heard from David Armstrong, executive producer and artistic director at Fifth Avenue Theater. We have produced 17 new musicals during those 18 years. Nine of those shows went from our stage to Broadway, and two of them won the Tony Award for Best Musical. And You heard from rising actress Portia Shaw. It's a hard pill to swallow. Like, oh, no one ever thought a, a little black girl could do this. And... I definitely can, and I could definitely be great at it, and I am not shy, and I don't care if I can't read the music, because my voice is banging, and I can sing the part. You heard from rising actor Andre Brown. And those musicians, they're so connected to the community, I hadn't known. Like, one guy I was hanging out with, he was a drummer, and then he was, like, performing in Columbia City, and, like, I would just kind of, like, be his, like, groupie. And then, like, I could jump on stage and just start singing with him and, like, jamming. Now, the final upcoming episodes of Seattle Growth Podcast spotlight how members of Seattle's music community are using their craft to shape the future of Seattle. Today's episode looks at how Seattle musicians are attempting to build a better tomorrow by using music for healing. You'll hear from Stephanie and Levi Ware about the Melodic Caring Project. There is a sense of, of profound division between people. And what what we hope this project can be is a platform for these artists to come together, share their message of love, of empathy, of compassion with these kids. But all of the crowd joins in that, and it's, it's infectious. You'll hear from Curtis Ramju about first aid arts. And I think our hearts have a resonant frequency, too, that there are things that when you do them, they make your heart sing and come to life. And so for me, music, surfing, there are things that like make my heart sing and come alive. Combined, these interviews not only introduce you to philanthropic innovators in our city, but further paint a picture about how Seattle's legacy of art, tech, and philanthropy intersect in our growing city. These human stories also offer inspiration for those looking to build a brighter future. Now to hear more about how the Seattle music community is collaborating to improve the lives of ailing children, join me as I sit down with Levi and Stephanie Ware. I am here with Levi and Stephanie Ware. Levi is a singer-songwriter and co-founder of the Melodic Caring Project, along with Stephanie, who is also a co-founder and chief financial officer of the Melodic Caring Project. Stephanie, Levi, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We are so excited to be here. Oh, my pleasure to have you here. So we'll start with Levi. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I am, as you stated, a singer-songwriter that's played in the Seattle area for 20-plus years and played all over Seattle, did a lot of touring, and um, was always looking for purpose. I always felt like my music was meant for more than just entertainment. And so, uh, you know, that was a 20-year journey that really clicked into place the night that the Melodic Caring Project was conceived. And Stephanie, tell me your story. I think go off of what Levi was saying about music, it, Melodic Caring Project started because it was something that we both could really uh, 
get behind and be focused on together and come together on. Music is a, is a part of him and a part of who he is. And it was just, it's not really a financially. It's a super good investment. No, it's not. That's what I'm getting at. It's not a good investment, um, in my opinion, from the business side of things. And it's something that we've always grappled with because I want to be supportive of him and his music. But it wasn't something that logically my brain could get behind from a financial standpoint because it's really expensive, <laughs> um, especially with having uh, we have three young kids now. But at the time, Melodic Caring Project was born. Um, we had two other kids recently born. So it was a bit uh, tough to know where to put our priorities. And when we did the first Melodic Caring Project show after that, it was both okay, this is it. This is what his music is going to look like. And this is what we can come together on and support for music. Before we get to what the Melodic Caring Project is, its mission and the impact it's having, what are the expenses? Why, why is it expensive to be a musician? It depends how you look at it, right? Do you want to be a successful touring musician or do you just want to play at a coffee shop down the street? You know, I mean, I was trying to make a life of it. I wanted it to be, that's why I feel like I was put on earth was to play music, you know? And so to do that and to do it well, if you're going to record an album with any level of quality, it takes money, you know, it takes a, a decent studio, it takes a good engineer, it takes a producer. And we found that really to do a high end radio worthy album is somewhere between 30 to 50 grand. And did you see that change over your 20 years of playing music? Yeah, I think there, um, stylistically, there was a whole kind of, um, almost, lo-fi movement that happened right where you could do an album in your bathroom and it could still be cool you know I mean there's the other thing that happened is there was a massive change in technology and so to be able to record a quality album changed just with the introduction of all that new technology but still to do an album well with good production and good engineering you can't just buy good gear. You have to know how to use that good gear, you know? And so it's still expensive to put together a good radio-ready album. So now you've found your passion in the Melodic Caring Project. What is it? Where did the idea come from? Tell us about it. Uh, like Steph said, we were trying to find common ground on music. For me, music is about so much more than the money you invest. You know, it's about the shared experience. It's about the connection with the audience. It's about... Um, I, I've seen music cross cultural boundaries, language boundaries, age boundaries. I mean, there's music is incredibly powerful. So for me, the financial investment was easy. It was obvious because of all of the return. I got an, you know, an amazing emotional uh, return off of it. But I understand from a investment standpoint, emotions don't carry a lot of financial value, unfortunately. So Melodic came about when Steph and I were trying to, we'd had a whole conversation just before Melodic was launched when, you know, she was saying, I get it. I get that you love music. I get that it's, you know, a passion, but if that's the case, you need to bring that to an audience that's open to that, ready for that. And that wasn't at bars. That wasn't, you know, in a lot of the places that we were playing shows. And so we were trying to find that common ground where, okay, then where do we bring music where people are open to hear, and they're not just there to hook up, or they're not just there to drink a beer, they're there because they want the music, they want the message, they want, you know, what it was that we were bringing to the table. And uh, a, a friend of mine who is a middle school teacher at Bayview Elementary School in uh, Burlington, 
called me one day because one of his students, an 11-year-old girl named Katie Kerbo, was diagnosed with leukemia. And he said, man, I, I have no idea what to do with this. You know, this is a really heavy diagnosis. It's really impacted the whole class. Do you have any ideas? And that's music to me. That's where music can make a difference. It can make an impact. You know, it's not just entertainment. We could show Katie that we were there. We cared. We could gather. We could come together to support her. And so I said, yeah, of course, let's do a concert. Let's bring Katie out. Let's bring her classmates out, you know, school, the principals, the friends, family, and let's just show Katie that she's not alone. We're all here to support her, you know? And so we did that uh, at the Lincoln Theater. We, we lined up a show and about 300 people were there gathered to support Katie and the day of the show, Katie couldn't be there. She was in the hospital, in quarantine, going through chemo. And it was a blow to all of us. You know, we had gathered thinking, let's do this great thing and be there for Katie. And then she couldn't be there to, to experience the support that we were trying to give her. And we thought, man, there's got to be a way for Katie to still be involved in this, you know, and um, had a laptop with a camera on it. And there was a coffee shop three doors down with an open Wi-Fi network and thought, oh, let's stream it to her. And so we quick set up a streaming platform or page, you know, and sent her the link for the stream. And uh, and that was it. We set the laptop on the edge of stage and played the show and got down in front of the laptop, in front of the camera and just said, Katie, we're all here for you. You are not alone. You know, we're sad that you can't be here, but we're here. We're supporting you. Everybody's sending you love. And then would pick up the laptop and turn it and the whole crowd would wave at Katie. And uh, after the show, called Katie and her mom in the hospital, and they were both crying because um, they felt it. It was emotional, and they knew that they were supported. They were not alone. And, and that was what clicked for Steph and I both. It was like, oh, oh, this is what we were talking about. It was the whole, who's your, who's your audience? Who's your target audience? And for, for him and his music, he always, you know, it was something more than entertainment, like he mentioned. And my struggle was, well, you're directing your message to the wrong audience then. And this just put it all together for both of us. What did it feel like to have that reaction to your music from Katie and her mother? Well, it's interesting because I've had that reaction before, right? I mean, that's why music hooked me. I've, I've had people, um, uh, there was a, a couple that were friends of my parents who, um, her husband had, cancer he ended up dying and the last thing that he listened to was my album and she reached out after he died and just said hey this was incredibly helpful for us you know it was very impacting and it was those experiences that that I took with me in music and realized this is very powerful and it's and it's given for a purpose you know and so um I think the thing with Katie and her mom's reaction more than anything was because of the application for me, it was like my whole life, it was almost like internally I felt it, click, 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 everything fell into place, you know, and, and we realized, wait a second, we can do this more. We can do this on an ongoing basis. This isn't just for Katie. This is streamed. We could do this for kids anywhere in the world, you know, and so we just started doing that and it's become the purpose for our life you know and, and since that day, we've reached over 5,000 kids all over the world. It started with you need to get Katie a performance. What do you do now? What are your, who are you involving? Well, Levi doesn't really sing anymore. We don't have time for that anymore. Um, now it's working with so many different musicians and artists and dance performers or even celebrities. We have a multi-camera 
unit now. So the kids are basically watching a, a live switch show like they would on MTV, but it's live. And so now it's turned into not only inspiring and being helpful for the kids, but we see the impact it's making on the artists and the crowd at the venues because when the artists will give them shout outs during their shows by name, the whole crowd will cheer and the kids feel that on the other end and the artists feel it. And it's just like a a circle of giving. And what kind of artists have you involved in this project? We have been incredibly lucky to work with just some amazing artists and people. You know, we've worked with Jason Mraz, Alabama Shakes, Rachel Platten, Graham Nash, uh, David Crosby, the Black Eyed Peas, Flo Rida, The Roots. Uh, We've worked with a ton of incredible artists. Amos Lee is a good friend of the project and has become an incredible supporter and, uh, and, you know, it's just a sweetheart with a good soul. How do you measure success? It's all about relationship. There's been a shift in us since this project started as well. I mean, as soon as we saw the potential, we recognized this is way beyond anything that we will be able to accomplish on our own, right? This is going to take a community. This is going to take um, an army, you know, and that's the stagnant army that we have. We, in, in playing music, there's so many passionate musicians out there that are that are playing that are desperately trying to make their music work but what does that mean you know i mean the a huge majority of aspiring musicians are never going to be famous they're never going to be household names right but that doesn't mean they can't be powerful that doesn't mean they can't be impacting and what we want this project to be is like that spark that lights them on fire recognizing hey we can make a difference with our music and the melodic caring project can be a platform for them to make that difference and reach out and inspire their community and we've recognized since launching this project that it's about so much more than just sending love and hope to the kids it's the kids have a message to share with everybody else as they're going through life-threatening illness their perspectives have changed and it's all about relationship. It's all about people and each other. And that's something that we all need to listen and pay attention to, right? I mean, we're living in a time when there's a tragic lack of community, a lack of empathy, a lack of compassion for each other. Yeah. And positivity. And there's a, there, we, there is a sense of, of profound division between people. And what what we hope this project can be is a platform for these artists to come together, share their message of love, of empathy, of compassion with these kids. But all of the crowd joins in that and it's, it's infectious, right? And people gain this sense of, wow, this is community. We need to come together and support each other and love each other and have, like I say, empathy and compassion. How has being in Seattle helped or hindered the growth of your project from a laptop with Katie to over 5,000 children and five, uh, and even more so lives touched by this experience? One way, uh, the Seattle arts community has been fantastic. You know, we when we first launched the project, like Steph said, there's this irony that I, I discovered the purpose for my music and then my music totally took a backseat because there's no way that this it, my music just couldn't support this project. There was no possible way, you know, and, and we recognized immediately okay, we can't become bookers and promoters and all of the things that this project is going to require to be impactful. And and so we went to some friends of ours, the Watt sisters, Kristen and Carrie Watt, who have Seattle living room shows here in Seattle. And um, we talked to them about the concept of what we wanted to do and said we need partners that are curating great shows that are well-suited to what we're doing. Um, 
and and will just be kind of that founding partner for the project. And they their response was immediate. We love it absolutely. And so we we really launched the project hand in hand with Seattle Living Room shows, doing really intimate house shows of 50, 75 people and streaming those concerts out to kids all over the country, you know? To add to that, Seattle has an amazing music scene. So it it has been a way for us to access that music scene. We've we've had some great partners jump on board Seattle Theater Group that owns the Paramount or that manages the Paramount the more in the Neptune and we've been able to do some really neat programming for the kids in hospitals and online through their uh, educational and arts department Um, one thing that I think our biggest struggle and not to say that's just it's Seattle, but I think just abroad is obviously funding. I think funding is tough for for any nonprofit and any startup. I think we were hoping maybe uh, um, we could get some of the the medical field and some of the the tech field, um, especially tech here in Seattle. But we just haven't lined those up yet. So we're still we're still looking in that direction because the beauty of melodic caring project is it it combines the arts the medical field and tech and so we'd love for um, to find people and corporations or businesses from all of those areas bring them together to create this goodness how has the how has the growth with all the money and people moving into seattle how has that affected your ability to achieve your mission it's interesting actually i want to expound a little bit more on seattle theater group because they have been an incredible uh, and very instrumental partner to Melodic Caring Project, right? They, when they saw what Melodic was about and, and the impact it was having on the kids, Seattle Theater Group's whole thing is access, you know? And they recognized immediately that this provides access to kids, to families, to communities that otherwise couldn't be a part of the arts, you know? And so they, they really kind of... Um, took Melodic under their wing in a way. And we've partnered with them, like Steph said, on their educational programming and that sort of thing. But if you think about the access this provides the kids in the hospitals, those kids are, they're completely their own demographic when it comes to unaccessible. You know, I mean, there's kids that are in quarantine whose families can't even go into the room, you know, much less them coming out to a concert or going to a theater presentation. Um, we have a little girl named Ariana that we've been supporting for about the last six months who has been battling cancer, um, for 10 years. She's 13 years old and they've tried all kinds of different treatments. At this point, they have her so dosed up with radiation that she is toxic. So most of these kids, you can't go into the room because their immune systems are compromised and they, you can't introduce an illness to them with Ariana. It's the other way around. She's so toxic that nobody else can go into the room with her, not her family, not her mom, not, you know, and so she is at such kind of a profound level of, um, quarantine that when we streamed shows to her and we partnered with Bumbershoot to stream all of Fisher Green stage out during the course of those three days. And she sat there in her hospital room in Philadelphia and watched all three days. And her mom just said it was, it was incredible, right? There was nothing, it, it was an experience that she just otherwise, there's no possible way she could have had that experience, you know? And so for Seattle theater group, they've recognized that this is an access and, and they've been an amazing support system to the Melodic Caring Project. So um, 
huge thanks to Seattle Theater Group. Any other ways that growth has uh, in the organizations here as the city's changed? Like Steph said, Melodic has been one of, I think the, the big thing for any nonprofit is sustainability, right? And creating enough funding that you can not only sustain, but grow. And Melodic has grown so fast in, in the few years that we've been up and running, right? We started with a couple of kids here in Seattle. We're now streaming to kids all around the world. We've streamed to Vietnam, to Australia, to New Zealand, South America, all of the US, Canada, Europe. We just launched in the UK. And it's a it's a massive undertaking to try to balance with essentially no staff, you know, no paid staff. Um, so we're still working on creating the sustainability for the project so that we can hire the staff we need. But the only way the project has survived is that Steph and I have started doing for-profit production on the side. And that's been a huge tech industry thing here in Seattle, right, where all of the production we do is at Microsoft or on campus, or we do some ancillary stuff outside of that. I mean, we do uh, we do the OpenStack annual meeting, which is all uh, open source software development and that kind of thing. But it's it's that tech industry that's really supporting our for-profit production company, and it's the for-profit production company that's allowed us to do the Melodic Caring Project. So that growth in Seattle and in the tech industry has absolutely supported the project, though not directly. Any concluding thoughts? So um, I think to me what's been amazing about this project is that the learnings, there's been, there's been a lot of business learnings, right? Simple things that we've learned along the course, but the things that really I feel like we've learned have been much more profound. They've been well beyond just a business application. I mean, we've learned about the purpose for life you know we've learned about humanity and the human condition and these kids and the families have taught us so much about what's important you know and I I think what I've recognized is all of us we get caught up in things that really are not crucial you know I mean it's just life we get caught up in work we get caught up in you know the things we have to do we have kids we got to raise we have work we have to get off to we have there's so much to balance our focus falls off of the things that are most crucial. And with these kids and their families, their lives are, are in the balance, you know, and all of the trivial things in life get boiled away and it's all about relationship. It's about each other. And they've taught us so much about the importance of relationship and of, like I say, empathy, compassion, you know, just caring for each other. And that's a message that the world desperately needs. And we've found that we're not just supporting these kids. These kids have something to teach us. And if the Melodic Caring Project can be a platform for them to come and tell their message about what's, what's most important in life, you know, then that's where we want to shine the light. You know, we want them to be able to scream that message from the rooftops because we need it. We all need it. You know, we need to care for each other more, period. Levi, Stephanie, Stephanie, Levi, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. For further insight into another philanthropic endeavor utilizing Seattle's rich music scene, join me as I sit down with the founder of First Aid Arts, Curtis Ramju. I'm here with Curtis Ramju, founder of the first ever nonprofit rock band, Jubilee, and founder and president of First Aid Arts. Curtis, thank you for joining me today. Jeff, pleasure to be here, man. 
Uh, so why don't we start by having you just tell me a little bit about yourself. I was born in Hawaii, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, and then music became a huge part of my life. So I would um, break dance to Michael Jackson on the refrigerator boxes with bandana tied around my leg, and then, uh, yeah, um, music was always lit my fire. And so you started the, the first nonprofit rock band, Jubilee. Tell me about what Jubilee was, what its mission was, and, and how on earth you decided to, to do that. So again, music was always in me. And then by the time I got to high school, I was living in Hawaii um, in 1996. And I was playing guitar, thinking of starting a band. And I saw a sailboat that had the um, name Jubilee on the boat. And I thought it was just an awesome word that kind of sounded full of life. I didn't really know what it meant, but like kind of juicy, bubblicious Jubilee, just kind of positive. Looked it up and found out about the year of Jubilee, which like is an ancient um, Hebrew idea of every 50 years um, slaves were to be set free, land was to be redistributed to the original owners, and um, basically it was like putting, hitting restart on the Nintendo where um, it kept people, one family or, you know, um, or in our world, corporations from getting a monopoly, and so it kind of evened the playing field. thought it was a cool idea, so we called the band that, and then um, when I got into college, um, I traveled, realized that, you know, even to own a guitar was a huge privilege. And so that idea of how can I do what I love, um, but make it more than just about me. And so, um, started using music to raise awareness about human trafficking. And that's when we decided, well, Hey man, there's all these festivals that are like a one-off thing. What if our band, like the whole time, you know, like, um, was always trying to do something positive with our shows. And so we gave, um, half our CD sales to fight modern day slavery. And every time we played a concert, we would just say, Hey, if you like the music and you buy the CD, you know that you're helping us support, um, bringing kids out of brothels and, um, men and women out of forced labor and prostitution around the world. So what about human trafficking touched you that you wanted to devote your time and energy to that? Basically, I was a Latin American studies major that had the privilege um, to be able to spend time traveling. And I saw a lot of need in the world. And I thought, man, I don't want to feel guilty for enjoying good things like music, but again, wanted to connect it to a cause. And then I realized that, you know, I didn't want to be just like a flavor of the month kind of thing where you don't really know what you're talking about. So I said, why don't I pick one cause to support with the band? And so then it was like, okay, well, what do you care about most? And um, I've since come up with something. The band um, had the motto, do what you love to fight what you hate. And I love the concept of resonant frequencies and how like if you have a wine glass and you put a speaker up to it, depending on how much water is in that wine glass, the speaker will then, um, if you get the frequency dialed in, or again, when you rub your finger around the rim, you can hear it ring out at a certain frequency. And I think our hearts have a resonant frequency, too, um, that there are things that when you do them, they make your heart sing and come to life. And so for me, music, surfing, there are things that like make my heart sing and come alive. And then also that same wine glass, if you put a frequency into it loud enough, it'll actually shatter that wine glass. And I think also there are things that for each of us um, that break your heart. And for me, when I heard about kids that were being raped for profit, to me, that was the most just horrific, degrading, dehumanizing thing that I could ever imagine in the world. And so for me, like the question, do what you love to fight what you hate. It's like, well, what do you love? To me, it's music. What do you hate? You know, and hating is not hating people. It's passionately opposing something that's broken in the world. And for me, that was the most broken thing was that there are kids being forced to have sex with people. Um, 
so that's yeah so the band was started and that's how we would do what we love music and fight human trafficking so you're going around the country fighting human trafficking but how does somebody listening to your music in seattle or colorado or hawaii what can they do after they hear your band back probably and this is fun where you're talking about the history of you know of the music scene when we were playing shows i would be you know playing shows at concert at um venues numos uh triple door we played some jazz and some rock so like over the our our span of years we played for about eight years um we played in a lot of different venues and most people even well-educated people even here on campus at UW didn't know that modern day slavery existed they knew it was illegal everywhere in the world but um that was news to everybody back in 2003 2004 when we were playing um I think most people now know that human trafficking is a thing. They might not really know what that looks like and what they can do about it. But at that point, raising awareness was a big deal. Um, and so our website, um, again, we told people if they liked our music and bought it, that they were already contributing to um, a group called International Justice Mission based in D.C. that fights human trafficking in 17 countries around the world. They're the largest NGO in the world doing that work. But that's what it looked like is, is raising awareness. And then we pointed them to people that um, if they wanted to learn more, if they wanted to try to do something, they could join the nonprofits that were actually engaged in that work. We were just supporting it and raising awareness. And so that's kind of where the band in my story is, is phase one. And, and that's like music and the arts as a powerful mechanism for raising awareness and for raising money. So kind of marketing, you're in marketing, like music is a huge and the arts are a huge resource for marketing because we saw how we live in the too much information age and how people are hearing about causes and problems and, you know, products all the time. So we have not only spam filters in our email, but we have spam filters in our brains. But when somebody expresses more of their humanity through song or, you know, even through the spoken word, people like MLK um, or you hear Billie Holiday's voice, it's coming from more than just your brain. It's coming from your emotions, from your spirit, from, you know, the fullness of who we are. So we, we found that as a marketing tool to raise awareness about a problem like slavery, we could get people's attention because we could fly past the spam filter in their heads and we could hit their hearts and their bodies with um, a message that came out of our hearts and bodies through our music. So you say Jubilee is phase one, and then you went on to found and become the president of First Aid Arts. What's First Aid Arts? And I imagine, is that phase two or is there something in between? Um, yeah, that's, I don't know exactly. I, I would say that's phase two. That's, that, when, I, when I dropped phase one, that's what I intended. But yeah, so First Aid Arts, um, after six years of using mer- music to market this problem that human trafficking existed, slavery existed, um, and raising money, then we, we began to hear stories of how if you want to help those kids that I was, you know, I heard about, um, you know, I met the founder of International Justice Mission who had personally rescued four-year-olds from sex trafficking, just horrific. If you care about those kids, then you, their like sustainable and holistic emancipation or freedom from that slavery Um, You can't just knock a door down, grab the kid and get out of there. Like once that child or even an adult is taken out of the immediate danger or that situation, they need holistic care and they need to build a life um, afterwards. And for a lot of people that have been so severely traumatized, it's really hard to 
see a world that that where you are worth more than what your trafficker or pimp or abuser has told you and especially if your family sold you into slavery or um, if you're in a you know an honor society where if people know that you were a part of that you're no longer welcome to come home so it's it's crazy I, i got to hear stories firsthand of what that looked like to care for people coming out of human trafficking And this is where a a big light bulb went off, was when we heard about how people that have been through unspeakable trauma have a very difficult time turning around and talking about it in talk therapy, which is what counseling is. So I knew that, you know, these kids and and women and men needed more than just a high five and, you know, 20 bucks or whatever to get them on their way. They needed holistic counseling, but... um, but that was new information to me, how um, it's really hard for people to talk about what they've been through. And then this is this is the big moment. So um, my wife and I had friends uh, that were in Uganda working with kids that were coming out of the Lord's Resistance Army. And this was a personal friend of ours, had a shiny degree from a great school in counseling. And she said that, you know, she was just writing her newsletters back and we were reading how the kids couldn't talk about what they'd been through. And so she's there to help them. But as a talk therapist, she can't help them move forward in their healing process until they can talk about it. Um, but it's pretty basic. If you have kids that you'll have like a soccer ball to kick and you'll have some pens and um, crayons and paper around. And so these kids started drawing what they couldn't say. And that was fascinating to us to hear, whoa, these kids will draw and engage in, in art with her but they won't like look her in the eyes and talk to her. And if, you know, it's hard to do this on a podcast, but like, you know, imagine I'm looking at Jeff here and it's like staring you in the eyes and direct communication of like to talk to me about the unspeakable is direct and really intimidating versus, you know, looking at a piece of paper in front of us here at like, you know, Jeff, wow, tell me about what you drew. And then the paper is holding your eye contact. And that's so much less intimidating for kids and for adults. Um, and so that was kind of a big aha moment where music, and art wasn't just a fantastic marketing tool, but it was also the the universal language of the arts. The heart language was also a powerful um, means for healing for people coming out of trauma. And then that just got us supercharged with like that question. And since we had relationships with International Justice Mission and other nonprofits, we'd start asking, you know, and say, hey, I knew personally by then the, you know, the head of aftercare for all of their 17 field offices. And I was like, do you guys use music? Do you use art to help kids heal or to help adults heal? And what we learned was that there were a lot of stories out there of how um, like one w- woman in India um, that was uh working in aftercare and a 14 year old girl they'd rescued from sex trafficking literally went mute for like four months and then they brought in a piano and she started playing the piano and that brought her back and where she started to be able to speak again um and so um again it's been a a decade-long story so it's it's i'm passionate about it and there's a lot to share but kind of you know to speed forward a bit we essentially just we were on a research project then at that point where it's like, man, this is incredible to hear how music and art is helping people when words fail um, and how it's beautiful. It's a, it's a poetically just thing, too, to not just bring somebody freedom and justice, but the poetic justice of bringing people that have been through such dark, oppressive situations, bringing the movement and color and dance um, and the joy of the arts. Uh, it's so fitting. And we 
created a advisory council and June of, or sorry, January of 2010 is kind of our official launch date for First State Arts. And we basically just said, hey, we want to, to talk to the experts and put together a very, very practical program in how do we bring the arts in a safe and an effective way to help um, human trafficking survivors in their recovery process. And that um, people were super generous. The head of music therapy at Seattle Children's Hospital jumped in with us, professors of art therapy, dance therapy, drama therapy. And we had 20 people um, kind of put together this this box of art supplies and a curriculum that we started training um, groups to use around the world. Can you share one story that, that you saw the impact of first aid arts? And I just went to Tukwila and was with families that had lost everything in home, um, Syria, and uh, and now are resettled in Tukwila. And we um, built a mosaic, like um, pieces of glass in an old school window frame, and they picked um, a design and built it with adults and kids and glued those pieces together into a window and then put it up where the light was shining through it. And like, it was a symbol of resilience. We had all these trees, pictures of trees that were growing and all these crazy situations where like the ground had fallen out and the roots were holding onto the sides and, you know, growing out of concrete, growing out of all these unlikely situations. And one of the gentlemen said, you know, like if the trees can adapt and live anywhere we as people can do that too if somebody's excited about your passion first aid arts and using uh, music and art to to help heal people how could they get involved with first aid arts if people want to connect with us we'd love to be in touch and if you google first aid arts or if you just go to firstaidarts.org there's a two-minute video that um, is right on the home page to learn more about what we're doing and then just click on the take action um tab and there's ways to volunteer to come um, go through an orientation with us to learn about how you can use the arts for health and healing in your own life because that's the thing it's it's not just for people who've gone through extreme trauma the arts are are healthy and healing for everybody and we all have stress we all are going through um, struggles and difficult things and so we have a a three-hour workshop that everybody in seattle should come to they would be healthier happier people how did being in seattle shape your nonprofit endeavors? Seattle was a perfect spot for this because if you think about it, um, beyond being known for rain, we're known for like Jimi Hendrix and the grunge scene. So it's like a music city. And then also it's Bill Gates' hometown. It's like philanthropy and tech as well as the music industry. And so I think it's, it was a perfect, um, it has been a perfect spot for First State Arts um, because it's a place where, again, rich in the arts and the arts are valued and then also um, philanthropy and then innovation has has also been a big part of the tech industry so just how do you problem solve how do you um, come up with smart solutions um, and to deal with problems and then again we're in the arts world too so with seattle changing so much in the last five years what benefits have you seen as a nonprofit in uh, with arts well, the age demographic for, you know, the the big elephant in the city of Amazon, I mean, that's that's younger people that are interested in, I mean, they're working super hard and then they want to play hard when they're done. Um, and so I, I haven't been performing as much in the scene, but I have definitely seen how um, there are opportunities for not even just musicians performing, but um, I know a company called Electric Coffin, some amazing visual artists that now have been doing these crazy um, installations um, for Facebook and for some of these tech companies. And um, 
that's an angle I'm trying to approach th this growth with for my side of things is right now I'm talking with Electric Coffin about um, approaching one of these bigger um, tech companies about a public art installation that essentially looks at, you know, kind of art and music as medicine um, for mindfulness, for dealing with toxic stress and intense work environments and not being, you know, addicted to, to medication. Um, and so um, that I feel like there are opportunities to engage the growth People, people want to, to be here. And I think that, that um, besides the, you know, the, the culture of tech brains working on these types of problems, people also, young adults, want to come to a city that has the, the arts and the cultural background that Seattle does. That's a draw for these businesses and for people to come here for that. So I think that there's kind of a, a, a cultural currency that the arts have that have made Seattle a desirable place. And so um, that's one thing I can speak to is just that is a conversation that, that is worth having that's out there. Um, and that we're hoping that these big companies will see that um, bring the arts into your spaces, in, you know, the the uh, big glass spheres downtown or, you know, these, these companies um, make it a more human place to work and give your company chances to, um, yeah, promote the arts, promote philanthropy, um, with corporate matching programs and giving programs and also with, um, mindfulness and, um, the value of creativity. So, so I'm, I'm trying to actually, that's one of the things first aid arts an opportunity we see is going into the workplace and making that, um, that opportunity available for, for them to partner with us to invest in their employees and to invest in not just their mental health, having um, breaks from the stress of that life, but also investing in the community and bringing the arts and bringing um, mental health resources to the refugees that are resettling in Tukwila right now, to um, people that are less fortunate and that maybe they're big companies and, you know, um, gentrification is pushing to the margins a little bit, like, you know, think about how, um, you can be engaging those po folks in positive ways. So that's, that's the, the opportunity I see and where I'm trying to approach things. What have you found to be the best part of Seattle's music scene? I have enjoyed, uh, some sweet moments of collaboration. Um, there's a great place if people don't know the, the Fremont Abbey, um, that is an art center that um, has something called the round. I was at my first round was like round number four. And now they think they're in like the 120s or something. And they did some monthly events. So they've been doing it for like 120 months or something. That is to me exemplary of kind of the best of the Seattle music scene. I know that like Robin Pecknell, the Fleet Foxes and, you know, a lot of different people that are beloved in our city here have gone through there. So it's had some big names through there. And then also just, yeah, a lot of other people that are up and coming. Um, the Fremont Abbey and the Round was a great, we played it, um, Jubilee played it. And um, it sets up an environment where people are there to you're sharing some of your own music and then other people are jumping in on it. It's, you know, open, spontaneous. There's live painting going on at the same time. It's intimate, you know, a hundred people maybe in the room. To me, that has been a really um, beautiful part of the Seattle scene. And, and I've also recorded through that Chris Orlowski, Alan Stone and I all sang with a bunch of other musicians on one of Chris's songs. Um, and I think a lot of collaboration um, has taken place in that building and beyond that building. Concluding thoughts? I mean, I feel like we have some 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 great music venues. I don't know if it's about building anything else, but it's like maybe recognizing you know what 
what the Fremont Abbey's doing in the round and just having more support for that, you know, group that's been putting in, they've been putting it together for, for the love of it for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, um, and then again, where, uh, what I'm pursuing is reaching out to some of these companies and saying, Hey, let's, let's try to make this thing more human for, for all, you, all of your employees and for the rest of the people that live in Seattle. Like, how can we, um, work together to bring the arts into these big facilities that you're building as well as how can we reach out a hand with a group like first state arts that can provide volunteer avenues for your employees to come and um, do art with Syrian refugee kids that are showing up um, and they're being resettled here. Like those are the kind of bridges I'm trying to build and where I think, again, the arts are such a disarming, welcoming and universal experience. And the arts are such a unifying experience. So as people move here, as the city grows and with the growing pains, I think that the arts are kind of a balm and a, um, a conduit, a connection point for, um, yeah, making this place human and livable. Curtis, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and hearing your perspective. Dude, thanks so much, Jeff. Blessings on your podcast. And I'm going to shake your hand even if no one can see it. <laughs> Aloha, you. brother. Stay tuned till the end of this episode to hear more from Curtis Ramju with music from his band, Jubilee. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate the podcast in iTunes. Your ratings can help the voices in Seattle Growth Podcast get discovered by more and more people. And we just have a few episodes left in this fourth season. Still to come, you'll hear from Grammy-nominated artist Hollis, artist activist Julie C., and the founding bassist for Band of Horses, Chris Early. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss a single episode. Next week, you'll hear from Stephen Severin, who owns the music venue you've heard mentioned time and time again this season, Numos. No matter what happens, that's always going to be here. There's always going to be people wanting to play at their local club or their local bar because that's what Seattle's about. That's a huge part of what we have been. That's never going to change as long as there's people that keep pushing it forward. You'll also hear from David Minert, owner of several music venues and the management company that works with the platinum-selling band, The Lumineers. If you look at where The Lumineers come from out of Denver, Colorado, they came up in a music scene that was thriving. And part of what made that music scene thrive is the amazing amount of venues they have there. And so going out to shows in Denver is just something people do. I hope you'll join me next week. Until then, I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the fourth season of Seattle Growth Podcast. Now enjoy Into the Waves by Jubilee. Like this, they come and go.